0: We're doing a Christology. In other words, we're looking at Jesus intently over these next weeks. We started two weeks ago. Uh, I'm going to be, I said, I'm going to be walking through the book of Hebrews and looking at how Hebrews describes Christ, the person of Christ, the nature of Christ, a Christology we called it from above, where you're, you're kind of getting this big picture, pro- proclaimed things to be true about the Savior, about the second member of the Trinity, And then on the other weeks, Pastor Jorge is going to be looking through the Gospel accounts a Christology from below, if you will, to look at how Jesus lived and talked and walked among us and actually demonstrated to us. Not just proclaimed over us who He is, but demonstrated to us who He is. All that in looking at Jesus as we talked about from Hebrews chapter 1. We see what God is like. Because that's who He is. Right? So this morning, we're going to uh, go back into Hebrews and talk about Jesus in terms of being, as the sermon title states, the greater prophet. We started off by basically getting this big lofty picture of Jesus as the exalted one. And as Hebrews walks on, we're going to see how it talks about Him in terms of the the key offices in the the Bible. The, The prophet, the priest, and the king. And how Jesus is the ultimate of all three and the combination of all three unlike anyone else. So this morning we're looking at Jesus as the greater prophet. Greater. It's a great word, right? I was thinking about the the uh, acronym GOAT this week, right? Greatest of all time. Thinking about sports. Pretty excited about the football season starting back up again. Got sports on my mind. And uh the term "goat" greatest of all time, and, and thinking about how Jesus is the greatest of all time, and just to help me think about the way that the writer of the Hebrews was trying to explain that to them, he's got a Jewish audience, and he's he's already been beginning to explain to them that Jesus is is the greatest because he's he is uh, the 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 perfect revelation of God. He's greater than the prophets. God has spoken to us through the prophets. That doesn't diminish them, but Jesus is. The final and ultimate and loudest and clearest speaking of God to us. In Hebrews 1, it also said that Jesus was superior to the angels. And here we're going to he- read about how Jesus is superior to Moses, greatest of all time. And what's happening when you're speaking to a Jewish Jewish audience and you get to, to Moses, you're, you're starting to touch on some like sacred ground. I, I don't mean that to be too punny, but like you're, you're touching like the if you say someone's greater than Moses, you, whoa, you better back that up. And it reminded me of when I was a kid, uh, how I felt about the emergence of this, this, this young basketball player named Michael Jordan that I'd never heard of before. And being from, originally from Los Angeles and being a Laker fan and, and just loving all through the 1980s, watching every one of those NBA finals with my dad, every magic and Larry battle. And, and just being convinced that Magic Johnson was the greatest basketball player who ever had or ever will live. I mean, I was obsessed with Magic Johnson. Literally, I had him in my, you know, pictures in my room. I had a Magic Johnson basketball that was all purple and yellow. And I mean, I had his shoes. I was, I was really into Magic Johnson. He was the best. And I still would say that he is. It's Magic Johnson. Come on. <laughs> so anyway, so, so then, then uh, you know, people started talking about this guy Michael Jordan out way out east in Chicago and never even thought about way out there. Some guy named Michael Jordan coming along and how he was the greatest basketball player on the planet and, and for those of us out west who were Lakers fans it was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> and how threatened I was by that. I was threatened by that. Like, don't, don't talk about somebody above Magic Johnson. Are you kidding me? And uh, and really, I mean, I uh, without going into too much of a long boring story here and 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 being too silly about it, I I I just held a sort of like this this skeptical eye about Michael Jordan all the way through his whole career. I just never really loved the guy because he took my Magic Johnson's place. <laughs> and. And just thinking about that, and even how silly that is, it, it, it kind of helped me think about the way that, that the Jewish audience would or could react to what the author of the Hebrews... And by the way, when I keep saying the author of the Hebrews, I, I'm not identifying a name because we're not sure exactly who wrote the book. All right? But the author of the Hebrews is, is saying something here that, I mean, it's pressing on everything that a Jewish person would hold dear. And He wants them to understand that, there's, that He could back it up. And that it's the greatest thing that they could know to see someone who's actually greater than Moses. So, let's read the text. Chapter 3, verses 1-6. to six, And hear what the writer of Hebrews is saying to this Jewish audience. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are His house indeed if we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. Now get this, as we're going through this, He's talking to a Jewish audience, but it's not just a Jewish audience. In terms, of, they're not Jewish in their religious um, faith at this point. Th- these are Jewish Christians. Right? So, it's, if I were to say it's one thing for someone to say, "Hey, there's someone greater than Moses," to a Jewish audience, we you know we'd understand that like the tension that would be there. But but he's talking to Jewish believers in Christ, and having to help them understand why Jesus is superior to Moses. Which to us might sound a little weird. Like, well, if they already put their faith in Christ, wouldn't they think Christ is superior? But they're struggling with this. And I want to touch on why I think that is as we go along and try to press a little application to our own context. But let's, let's kind of just feel this out a little bit more. Uh, this idea of Jesus is greater than Moses. And by the way, that's my, my first point here on the screen. Jesus is greater than the greatest. If you'll recall, we opened the series with this again lofty Christology of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The author here is extolling us, extolling to us the supremacy of Jesus, and he and he makes these big cosmic claims about him, right? He gives him credit as the, the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He, he tells us that he is the ultimate revelation of God to mankind because he's the exact imprint of the nature of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. In other words, he's saying Jesus is supreme because Jesus is in fact God. And there were two comparisons, again, made in that opening chapter. There was a comparison to the prophets, verse 1, and then there was a comparison to the angels. And in both cases, the writer here is saying Jesus is superior to the Old Testament prophets. He's superior to the angels which are two very significant claims right so for us as a non-jewish audience if if he's been talking about jesus being superior to old testament prophets kind of on the whole and even to angels and then he starts to talk about moses to us that might seem like a bit of a step down angels moses i you know you you kind of usually think of angels higher at least i do in a lot of ways at least so it, it, it might feel like, a, like he's ramping down his argument here. In fact, I said in, in my previous sermon that angels are the highest created servants and messengers of God. And that's why that was such a significant statement. So, how does Moses compare to that? But see, if you're a Jewish audience, this is actually a step up. Okay? This argument is going, the trajectory is going, it's getting, it's getting deeper and steeper as he's going along. In fact, in the 2nd century, there was a rabbi, and I'll try to say this as as good and Jewish as I can, Yose ben Chalafta. Is Rachel Heller here? I wanted to get affirmation that I said that well. She is here? You don't know? Oh, come on. (laughs) Well, this rabbi in the 2nd century would disagree with what I said last week about the angels being the highest created messengers of God, this is what he said. He said Moses excuse me he said God calls Moses faithful in all his house. And thereby he ranked him higher than the ministering angels themselves. And that would have been a very common way of thinking for many Jews. So the, so the writer of Hebrews after making the case that Jesus is above the angels would now have to ramp it up and prove to them why Jesus is worth worthy of more glory than even the goat. The greatest of all time for them, Moses. So, in other words, Moses is the Michael Jordan of the Jewish faith. Okay? <laughs> it, just to kind of help you wrap your mind around the, the argument in this text, for, for the Jewish audience, Moses is Michael Jordan. All right? Or for me, Magic Johnson. <laughs> now, why is that? Why is that? It's because, and this makes sense, Moses was the direct recipient of the law. God delivered that to, to Moses, right? And Moses, therefore, was the one who gave the law to the Jewish people. And for the Jews, the law is the greatest thing in the world. So, so to see Moses as the deliverer of the law and the, and the direct recipient is to say, really, that Moses and the law are one in the same thing. They, 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 that's a sort of equated together for them. And so that's what set Moses apart. From all the other prophets, from all the other messengers of God, even for this rabbi, the angels. And, and this phrase here that the writer of the Hebrews is quoting, faithful over all his house, is quoted from Numbers chapter 12. I'm going to put this up on the screen. Numbers chapter 12, verses six through eight. Listen to this. The Lord said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. Or I speak with him in a dream. But not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth. And not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying the Lord here is saying Moses is different. Everybody else, I speak to them in a vision. right? I, I make a revelation. Moses has seen me and talked with me face to face. So again, for the Jewish people, it would be inconceivable to speak of someone who was more worthy of glory on a human level than Moses. And yet that's exactly what the writer of the Hebrews wants them to do. Right Now before I go any further into that, let me state up front, and I hope this is obvious from the text itself, this is not a knock on Moses. To say that there's another one who's worthy of more glory than Moses is not a knock on Moses. Moses was, as the author here says, truly a faithful servant of God. That Moses was faithful over all the household of God, right? So it's not about turning the volume down on Moses, but rather it's about turning up the volume on another who is greater. And here's the key argument look down at verse 5 and 6 again. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So you you get the idea here. A son is greater than a servant. Right? But also that in the middle of those two statements, That what Moses was doing was pointing to something greater than himself all along, something that was going to come later. And the author here wants us to understand it's the Son, right? And so what he says to them is, verse one, consider Jesus. Consider him. And that word consider here doesn't mean just sort of like weigh him out as an option. The the word means fix your gaze on Him. Look at Him. Fix your eyes on this Jesus and take in and understand who He is. That's what He's trying to say here to them. And in doing that, you'll find that even though Moses was great, Jesus was greater still. How? Well, the author gives us a couple of key reasons. The first thing he says here in that verse is Jesus is the apostle of our confession, right? The apostle of our confession. Now, that's an interesting word, apostle, because we're used to the word apostle in the New Testament. And that word is used to talk about disciples of Jesus, right? Regular human beings like the rest of us. But the, the writer of Hebrews doesn't use the, the word apostle in that same way. He never uses the word to talk about any man except for the God man, Jesus. He reserves that title, and and it's 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 the, the the literal meaning of the word that he has in mind, which is this: it's it's sent one. That's what apostle means. So he's saying, look at Jesus, he's the one who was sent. He's the one of our confession who was sent. Moses was called to God. Burning bush? Jesus was sent from God. Right? So consider Him as the the sent one. Secondly, Jesus is the high priest of our confession. We're going to talk more about priesthood in the the next couple of weeks, but the the idea of the priest was a, a bridge. Right? You've got a holy God. You've got sinful humanity, and there's got to be a mediator between the two, right? So you've got priests who act as that those kinds of mediators, and then you've got the high priest, who is the the one who makes you know the ultimate atoning sacrifices for the people of God, and he's saying this is who Jesus was. Now this is not what Moses was. Moses was a mediator between. God's people and the, the holy God, but Moses wasn't able to take on the office of the priesthood. In fact, God tells Moses, that's for your brother Aaron and Aaron's line from here on out. So Moses is a prophet who, although he has mediating um, responsibilities, he's a prophet who never becomes a priest. Jesus is the prophet who is the priest and he's the only prophet and priest, and we'll find out a little bit later as well, and king. That's what makes Jesus different. And then he says Jesus is the builder of the house. Moses was part of the household. right? This argument that the builder of the house is greater than the house itself, you can think of that in a, in a couple of different ways. One is probably the most obvious that you're thinking of. Like if you build a house... It's still just a house, and you're you're the one who thought of it, conceived it, designed it, constructed it that that gives you greater status than the house itself right but but think of it this way too not just a house in terms of sticks and stones and a roof but but a household right if you're the if you're the builder of a household, if you're the the head of a household, you're talking about. People and, and and those who belong to the family. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is Moses was a part of the household, but he's not the head of the house. That's Jesus. And that's why he has more glory. He's over the house. Moses was just part of it. Moses was like you and me. Jesus is the head. All right? So what's the point? Here's the point. Don't miss The message for the messenger. That's the point. You ever heard the expression, don't miss the forest for the trees? It's kind of the same idea. Don't miss the message for the messenger. Don't get so focused on Moses or any other of the prophets or any angels or whoever the messenger may be so that you're so fixated on who they are that you miss the whole point of their existence to tell you about somebody else who's greater. Don't miss the message for the messenger. Moses was a messenger. Jesus is the message. And the difference between the messenger and the message is significant. The difference is this. We can't be saved by placing our faith and our hope in the messenger. We can only be delivered by placing our faith in the object of the message. And that's why he's saying here, Moses was faithful, but he was talking about something else. He was pointing to a greater day. Now, he demonstrates that throughout the chapter. Chapter 3 and chapter 4. And you got to understand, again, he's talking to a Jewish audience, so a Jewish audience is going to understand that the greatest redemption moment In the history of the people, in the history of the world, is the Exodus. That's why Moses was such a big deal. Moses was the one who led them out of Egypt and into, you know, ultimately the promised land, although he didn't quite get them there, right? But he's the one who delivered, crossing the Red Sea. He was the leader. So, so this is the great act of redemption in the Old Testament. This is the great act of redemption and understanding of the concept of redemption for Jewish people and Moses is the he's the king he's the leader he's the one who led us out but look at verse 16 of chapter 3 this is what he says to this Jewish audience he says look for who were those who heard and yet rebelled in other words you know the story they they got out of egypt but they didn't get into the promised land for a long time 40 years they wandered in the desert why because there was a rebellion there was there was faithlessness, right? There was grumbling and complaining. There was worship of false gods. There was all kinds of problems that got in the way. Ultimately, Moses didn't get them into the promised land. Who was it who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? If Moses is the greatest, then how come you didn't get in under Moses? That's the argument he's making. They say, well, yeah, but they got in under Joshua. That's true. Look at chapter 4, verse 8. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So they got into the promised land, and yet, he's, he's talking about something else that God was saying there's a, there's a greater rest yet to come. The idea of rest was for them wrapped up in the promised land. But there was something else. What was it? Well, if you look at chapter 3, we'll come back to this a little bit, but chapter 3, verse 7, the writer here is quoting from Psalm 95. And he says, "...Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, for your, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they will always go astray in their hearts They have not known my ways, and I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Right? So that's the, that was the judgment of God against the rebellion of Israel under Moses, and even into Joshua. And the writer's quoting here from Psalm 95. Now, just think about this. Psalm 95 was written by who? Guess. Yeah. Right? So you've got, You've got a lot of time passed, right? David's looking back on all these events. These are long ago for David. And David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying, today, hear from me. Don't harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. In other words, the rest that they got even under Joshua wasn't uh, uh, sufficient rest. There was a greater rest. And David's saying it's still, it's still something that we're looking for today. And that's what the author here is saying. If Joshua had given them rest, God wouldn't have spoken of another day later through David. Chapter 4, verse 1 Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The author here is saying, look, there, it wasn't just about Moses and the law. There was, there was something else that they heard. There was a good news that they heard that was, it was bigger than Moses. It was about putting their trust and faith not in Moses or the law, but in God Himself. And, and they, 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 they may have followed Moses out of the Exodus. They may have grabbed onto the law. They may have tried to live that out. But at the end of the day, the reason they didn't enter into rest is because they didn't have faith in God Himself. And here, the writer is saying, don't fall under the same trap. You've been given the full revelation of of what that faith, what the object of that faith is, who it is. It's Jesus. You've heard the good news. So just like them, don't, don't miss out on faith in the message, the person of the message, Jesus because you've gotten yourself still wrapped up in your identity with the messenger, Moses, your Jewishness, whatever. Verse 6 of chapter 3, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a Son. This is the One in whom our faith needs to be placed. And we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. The gist of it is he wants them to understand that though Moses was a great and faithful servant of God, their their redemption wasn't in Moses. It was in faith in the Deliverer Himself. And anything less than that faith is an idolatry. And idolatry is the rebellion that he's talking about. And if you're guilty of the rebellion of idolatry, you're not really trusting in the Savior Himself, but in even His servants as an idol, you're missing the salvation that's being offered to you. So he's trying to get them to understand, look, Jesus is greater than the greatest Moses. And I'm thinking, okay, how do we, a mostly non-Jewish, 21st century audience, contextualize this passage? And it, it it has to be by basically saying the same thing to us, but 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 saying it directly to us. Jesus is greater than your greatest. Okay, well, what, what do you mean by that? Two things. The, f- the first one is simply by remembering that we're saved by faith in Christ and not by our Obedience to the law. We talk about that a lot. That's what makes us people of the gospel, people of grace, rather than legalistic. right? We're not saved by the law. We don't earn our way to heaven. We We don't prove our worth and righteousness before God. We trust in the One who was righteous on our behalf. That's what our baptisms were all about, celebrating that, right? We remember that we're saved by faith in Christ and not the law for sure. And I know you know that, Christians here, I know if you're, if you're a regular part of this church, I, I know you hear that all the time. And I think the writer of Hebrews is thinking to his audience, I, I, you know that too. You're Christian Jews, but there's still a need to say something to them about this tendency to fix their eyes on something other than Jesus. And so that's that's the second thing, I guess, is to, to, to recognize that we too can easily be guilty of giving greater glory to faithful messengers over or rather than the object of the message. In other words, I mean that it's easy to have a sense of righteousness. It's easy to have a sense of good standing before God because of who or what we identify with rather than faith in Christ alone. Let me try to give you some examples. Many of us, I hope in a sense all of us, because we're 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 Protestants in our confession, we will identify with the work of the reformers. Right? Our our confessions, our our creeds are, are, are rooted in that, you know, scripture alone, faith alone, Christ alone. The, the work of the reformers, and we've, we've, we've been, we've been, uh, discipled, if you will, under the, the leadership of the Martin Luther's and the John Calvins and the, you name it, right? That we're, we, we've got these, this great theological tradition that we've, we've built our faith and our confessions and our, our church polity around. And it can be really easy for us to say, my, my right standing, my righteousness. The reason why I've got this Christianity thing together is because I'm rooted in Calvin or Luther or Swingley or whoever it is that you want to look back to and say, these are the sort of the fathers of the Protestant Reformation. And we can get really theological sounding and really Deep and religious, and, 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 and have a lot of sort of godly talk and air about us by placing such an emphasis on the theology and the tradition of the reformers and completely miss the message. Right? Or you say, well, okay, well, that, that's a little too theologically egghead for me. I've never been that big into the Reformers. Well, what about just general, again, I'm, I'm trying to talk to, to sort of Christians who swim in sort of the, the same waters that, that we tend to as a church. Gospel-centeredness. Love that term. Love that idea. It's a great idea. Be centered on the gospel, and so we we listen to and we read, and we we are shaped by so many good and faithful messengers of the gospel. And so we say, you know, John Piper is like a guy that I really have learned and grown from, or or a Matt Chandler or a Beth Moore. I you know, I pick your favorite, and we could say, you know what, Amen, and praise God, they're faithful servants. But they're not Jesus. And it's easy to identify ourselves and sort of again, sort of sense our our righteousness, our our rightfulness in our proclamation of our faith and understanding of who we are because we've attached ourselves to a messenger and rather than the message. Or maybe mission is the thing that really floats your boat and and helps you to feel like you're, you're right with God because you're missional and you're evangelistic and you have a passion for seeing the good news going out around the globe. And if that's the case, praise God. But if you're, if you're so influenced by the, the Hudson Taylors or the Dottie Moons or the whoever's and, and it, and that becomes the basis for which you sort of see yourself as being right and godly rather than an actual trust in and relationship with Jesus, then you've trusted in a messenger and missed the message. I've got got several examples here. They're all basically the same kind of idea, but I want to mention a couple others just because I think they're worth mentioning. Beautiful examples of the, the, the Christology from below like Jorge is, is going to be helping us think about the, the life and the message of Jesus and how that intersects with social issues social justice and, and care for the poor or the the marginalized I mean again we, we can look at work of faithful servants of God who have who've done much in those areas you know a Martin Luther King Jr. or you know a Mother Teresa and we could say, that's, that's kind of how I identify my rightness before God. I'm, I'm aligned in that stream of activity in the way that, that, that defines my faith, the way it's lived out. And again, I'd say, those are faithful servants and praise God for that activity. But if the activity and the idea of the activity is your right standing before God and not the person of Jesus himself, you've, Missed the message for the messenger. Our denominational allegiances, our confessional allegiances. I'm, I'm trying to put my my thumb on this and because I can sense in my own life that there are times when I think my my like my fullness of joy in some ways, as I consider my own. Right standing before God as I, as I consider what makes me a believer and what makes me pleasing to God as a believer. My fullness of joy can sometimes be more wrapped up in the way I feel like I've aligned with certain messengers than it, than it can at times be with how, how actually deeply unified in faith in Christ alone am I. Can you relate to that? I'm trying to put my thumb on that. It's, it's sort of hard to figure out like, what's going on there, but I come back to this idea. It's simply this. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. And the thing is, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a particularly deceiving kind of idolatry because it's not pagan in its origin. It's not, un, it's not unbiblical in its origin. We're talking about faithful, godly servants of Jesus Doctrines of Jesus, ideas of Jesus, but when we're when we're drawn to the idea or the doctrine or the servant of Jesus, and it, to the neglect of our actual union with in faith, trust in Christ, Jesus Himself, we're actually committing idolatry. And so that's what the writer of the Hebrews is trying to say. Do you, do you get that? You, your, your confession is Christ, but you've, you've made Moses greater. Your confession is Christ, but you've made your Reformed theology or your favorite pastor or your denominational affiliation or your, your 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 work in the world, you've made it greater than actually Jesus Himself. And you've missed the message for the messenger. And so he just gives them this urgent call to trust in the true greatest while there's still time. Because He wants us to understand that even though all those things are faithful servants of Christ, when they replace Christ and they become an idol, you've committed rebellion. and And you fail to enter into the rest that Jesus alone can really provide. And so He says again, Chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Encourage one another. Don't, don't let each other commit these idolatries, even in the in the name of good things and servants of Christ. Don't harden your hearts. Don't lose sight of the actual object of our faith. Chapter four, verse sixteen. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You know why idols don't save you? Idols don't offer grace. They offer a a, a law. Do this. Meet this. Follow this. And find your, your worth before God. If you're you know if if you're real big into reformed theology and reformed theologians then man the more you can get into that reformed stuff the more more god's going to be pleased with you you're really into the social you know care of of society and and you're doing that with a heart for 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 god and and but that's that's the thing for you and like the more you can serve the more you can demonstrate your your love for people and care for them. Then you're proved to God. Your worthiness. You, you've 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 latched onto a good thing and made it into an idol that actually is killing you. Because it's not offering you grace. Here's the grace of Christ that makes Him superior. Jesus says, "I'm the one, and the only one, who's actually lived a sinless life." I'm the one and the only one who can actually stand before a holy God and not be worthy of judgment. I'm the Son. I'm the one that all the servants have been talking about. I'm the greater day. I'm the hope. I'm the answer. And when you place your faith and trust in Me, My righteousness, My pleasing to God, is applied to you, but you don't have to slave for it. That's grace. That's grace. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. You know, I'm I'm praying for our church and I'm praying for myself that we would learn more and more what it means to really know Christ. To trust Christ. To look to, to consider Jesus. Because I know how easy it is to look at all the good things and the servants of Christ and somehow attach our, our righteousness to them. And what a deceitful, ugh, what a frustration. And you know, you know, it's happening because your joy diminishes. That, that understanding that in Jesus, there's fullness of joy. There's life to be found. There's, there's peace that passes understanding. It sort of eludes you. And you're going, what's the deal? I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm running after all the things of Jesus. Why am, why is the joy of Jesus eluding me? Because I think you've made an idol out of the things and you've missed the message. The person of Christ. So do you know Him? That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get them to understand. Do you trust Him? Do you know Him? That's my prayer for us, that we would know Him. Love His servants, but trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this great reminder to us. And Lord, we we pray that You would help us to know Christ. You've sent Him to us. He is the radiance of Your glory. He is the exact imprint of Your nature. He is the One who has made us and we belong to Him. And He's, he's given of Himself to us. He's died for us. He's resurrected and brought us with Him that we, we would know Him. That we'd know You. So Lord, help us to, to know Him. And, and, and just help us to trust Him. Help us to, to consider Jesus when we're tempted to, to look at the things around Him and build our, our faith around those things. Lord, just remind us that those things aren't Jesus. They're, they're helpful. They point to Jesus. But they're not Jesus. And Jesus, is the, He's the goal. So even if we don't really know what we're asking when we pray that prayer, and sometimes I'm not sure what I'm asking when I pray that prayer. What does it really mean to to know Jesus? Lord, would You just help me know Him? Draw me to Him. Let me have the discernment to see the difference between a servant of Christ and Christ Himself. And and would You just manifest Him to us in such a way that we, we would find joy in the Savior. Give us sweet union and fellowship with Christ. Give us joy in Him. Forgive us for our idolatries. Thank you for your grace. Oh, to know Christ.